Win at Work and Life with Nikki Bush is the podcast where you and I explore what it means to win at both work and life. Today, we get to choose how to create a life of meaning and self-expression that includes both our work and life outside the office with our families. Please send through your comments, questions, and topic suggestions to info at nikkibush.com. Don't forget to share the Win at Work and Life podcast with your friends and colleagues to empower them to win at work and life too. In today's podcast, I have a very special guest coming to us from the UK, and that is my friend and colleague and mentor, Derek Jackson. Derek is a veteran educator, retired counselor, author, parent, and grandparent. And I thought today we should discuss one of his specialties, which is helping people, whether they are children, parents, or people in the workplace, because Derek's work has spanned not just working with parents at schools, but he's had contracts with corporates over the years. How to adjust to trans to, to trauma, because what we're going through with COVID-19 is a transition through various stages of grief, loss, and trauma. So welcome, Derek. Welcome. Thank you. Nice to be with you, Nikki. So, Derek, can you take us through the model that you've explained to me over the years of the seven stages of adjustment or transition to trauma? Right. I want to first put it into context. What we're dealing with, as you said, is transition or change. And uh, I find there are uh, three basic principles about change that are critical to handling change. The first one is the most obvious, and that is that change is inevitable. From the time we leave our mother's womb until the day we die, we are going to be subject to change. So the first change we have to deal with is coming out of the mother's womb from that protective environment, and here suddenly you are squawking for air and food and other needs. And it's a hell of a shock. And we're going through a similar shock right now, aren't we? And the shock to the mother and the yes. father and sometimes even the gynecologist. <laughs> so then as we go on, we've got to learn to walk. We've got to learn to talk. Uh, we've got to potty train. And that's a huge change, to learning to potty train. And then... Just as we cope with those basic things, mother puts us in a, in a, 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 a little group, a care group, and we have to change and get used to living without mother for three hours a day. And once we've got used to that, then we go to formal nursery school, and that's another change. And then we go to primary school, high school, uh, university, the world of work, Marriage, divorce maybe, uh, being in a big house one day and now you're retiring and you're going into a smaller flat and giving up your nice big house and your swimming pool and your furniture and now you're in a flat and you're there for a few years and you think you're settled but eventually the chairman of the complex phones your uh, son and says you've got to get your parents out there, they're going to burn the complex down. And so now you have to move from the flat into a retirement home, and that's another big adjustment. And then you think, well, that's final, but it's not final. 
because after a few years you need to go into frail care. So the point is right until the day you die, you're going to have to adjust to change and people who don't adjust to change and deal with change are going to lead miserable lives right until the death. So second principle of our change, change is always stressful. Even for something good, like when you buy a new house, you think, oh, we're going to move into this wonderful house, it's going to be so. But we all know from research, moving house is a very stressful uh, occupation, you can say, and a transition. Uh, I've managed to change, uh, I've managed to trace three males who have died of a heart attack on being told they've won the lottery. Wow. Men try and keep emotions in and this huge uh, uh, shock of suddenly being rich, even though it's positive, uh, they can faint or die of a heart attack. Right? Ladies, when they are subject to some change, good or bad, they tend to let out their emotions and they break into tears. I remember with my late wife, we'd go to a wedding and she loved weddings. And she would come out crying. I'd say, well, why are you crying? Oh, it was such a lovely wedding. <laughs> uh, so change is always stressful. The third principle about change, no matter how bad that change is, it is always an opportunity for personal growth. When something terrible happens in your life, like say your mother dies and you love your mother, you think I'll never cope. But life has a way of putting us through. We become aware of inner resources we didn't realize we had before. People come to our assistance that we never thought would. And through this experience, we uh, learn some coping mechanisms. And the next time we have a big change, you say, well, if I could cope with my mother dying, I could cope with losing my job. So those three principles should be kept in mind as we go through this hour. Derek, I think what you've said is so very, very important that positive or negative stress, uh, pos positive or negative change is stressful. I mean, you, I think of your situation right now, have moved country from right. South Africa to the UK. Immigration is such a huge change. It's a massive change and it takes time to adjust and adapt. And as you, as you say, the word is transition from one space to another. You and I have spoken at length about my recent transition over the last two years from right. being married with a husband to being widowed through a very traumatic uh, death. My husband was, was murdered and shot in our home. And what you say here on point number three of the opportunity for personal growth, I can attest to that, uh, that there is such a window of opportunity to become more than you were before, but it is about how you go through the transition, this how you transition from one place to another. So maybe you could pick the conversation up from there. Right, I'll yeah, do it with an example. When my children were about four and six years old, I decided I wanted to do a, a second master's degree in the United States. I had a master's degree in psychology, but you know, South Africa uh, tends to be uh, a very uh, 
intellectual approach, not such a pragmatic approach, a theoretical approach rather than a pragmatic approach. And I just felt I wasn't counseling effectively. And so I knew in the United States they do very pragmatic counseling. So I wanted to go there and uh, move the family to the uh, United States for 18 months. Now they were four and six years old. My eldest daughter just started school, six months into school, because we had a start in September. The younger daughter was at nursery school, settled, and we had a very loving, big family around us that we saw every weekend. And here we were going to go to America. Now, before a transition, say a few months away, you're not in an emotional state. You, are, you weigh up the pros and cons quite rationally. And we did that as a family. And we said, you know, uh, it's going to be very hard leaving our close-knit family here. And the children are settled in school. And our, my, my job is good. And my wife was looking after the children. She wasn't working. She was enjoying herself at home. And here we were going to go overseas where we hadn't been before. And uh, we looked at the cons of that. I was going to get another master's degree that I believed that would help me in my profession. And the children were going to have this wonderful experience of going to school in the United States. So we looked at it rationally, weighing up the pros and cons. Three days before we were due to move, the furniture lorry came because we were renting our house out and the people didn't want our furniture and the furniture lorry came and took our furniture and we all looked at this empty house and suddenly we froze. And we call that the first uh, emotion uh, that you go through in transition immobilization you become immobilized with fear and you start trying to get out of the situation and so i said to myself look i don't have to go to america why am i doing this i've got a good job yeah uh, the children are settled why am i doing this uh, but then i said but uh, my position at the education department has been filled by someone else i can't get it back for a year so what am I going to do? And also the embarrassment. Everybody knows you're moving overseas and they're all thinking, wow, you're very brave and you're quite a celebrity doing this. And now I've got to go and tell them, now I'm too scared to go to America. So I started looking for excuses. I started watching every news bulletin to see if there wasn't a war going on that I could say, okay, I can't go. Uh, and you tend to exaggerate the problems in the immobilization stage. I said, how could we have ever thought of taking the children to America? We've never driven in the snow. I'll write them off taking them to school in the snow. I'm not experienced with snow. And so you exaggerate the problems. That child can... Sorry, Sorry. You I think to... you're going to say exactly what I was about to say. That child going to a new school is such sure. a classic example of where oh. we've we've done the pros and cons. We we we've worked it out in our heads, but the day comes, and then you say, "What was I thinking?" Uh, so yes, I was going to say this is a lovely said, parallel for something that happens often in people's lives. So this child who before two weeks, three weeks ago was saying it's going to be so nice to leave these other little babies at nursery school and go to big school and have a uniform. 
suddenly says, oh my God, I don't want to go to a new school. So now they've got to try and get out of this problem. And so they start exaggerating the problems. I'll never cope with reading. Look at my brother. He's so brilliant, but he can't cope with reading. He's struggling with reading. Uh, the maths, I've seen the maths he's doing. I'll never be able to do that. And so they don't want to go. So they tell me, wake up the next morning and say to the mother and father, I've got this terrible headache. I've got this terrible tummy ache. The so-called psychosomatic symptoms we see before a big transition. Even adults going to a new job will tell their wife, phone the boss and say, I've got a sore back. A sore back is the most common psychosomatic symptom of males, uh, adults. Uh, so you try and get out of the problem, so you exaggerate the problems. But life is a way of putting us through, and you say to your child, you get your butt out of bed, you're going to school. And so now you have to deal with this. So then you come to the second stage, and that is minimization. In order to get your butt out of bed, you've got to minimize the problem. So now you start reversing the things. Oh, for goodness sake, I'll easily be able to cope with school. My dumb brother copes with school, so why won't I be able to cope with school? Uh, and that helps us to deal with this problem now. So uh, adults minimize the problems as well. You know, if you've got a staff member that's getting dissatisfied with being, they look for another job and they find another job and they say, oh, I'm going to be so pleased to get out of this hellhole. I can't wait to go. And you can uh, put it in your diary. Once they leave, six weeks later, they'll be back at your office. Uh, they always come to uh, pretend they come in there to uh, uh, thank you for the lousy present you gave them. But they've actually come there to see if they can't get their job back. They're hoping when they walk into the office, the boss will say, this place is falling apart without you. <laughs> uh, if you come back, we'll double your salary and give you a Mercedes-Benz. Uh, so, uh, now that child always wants, you'll find in the minimization stage, they always want to go back and see their old teacher. Experience uh, primary school teachers at the end of primary school. They know six weeks after the new term begins that high school children will start coming back uh, just to say hello. They tell their mothers, I just want to go and say hello to my old teacher. And uh, uh, they're hoping that when they come back, the teacher will see them and say, hey, Timothy, uh, you must come back. We made a mistake with your marks. You've got to repeat you know, your grade again and get back to primary school. <laughs> These are the fantasies one has in that minimization state you've got to get out right? so i've got a question here around minimization and COVID 19. i was having a, a a little moment of feeling um panicked around lockdown and i was pacing up and down my backyard i haven't got a very big property and i was trying to get some exercise to get my head right and i started thinking to myself my goodness if Viktor Frankl in a concentration camp could find meaning in this, if 
if Nelson Mandela on Robben Island for all those years could survive, so can we, so can I. Was that a way of me minimizing yes, the issue sure. for me and giving it some context? If they were dealing with something that must have been way worse than I'm going through right now, then right. surely I can pull myself through. Sure, sure. Now, um, with that minimization, uh, they're wanting to get to the next stage subconsciously. And unfortunately, so now they enter the new stage. So this child goes to uh, first year in primary school. And for the first two weeks, everything's fine. The grandparents are taking photographs of them in their school uniforms. The teachers haven't started to uh, uh, make them read yet. They're not doing mathematics yet. The teacher's still getting them used to basic routines. And so they are lulled into a false sense of security. They say, this is easy. They haven't made friends yet, but none of the other children have made friends either. So they're not feeling left out. And so they feel quite comfortable. But after about six weeks, the teacher does start with formal work. The teacher sends them home with a reading book and they can't read it properly. And father gets upset and starts shouting at them and uh, they haven't made friends yet and other boys and girls have made friends but they haven't made a friend yet and so now they start going into the third stage and that's the worst stage of all and that is depression and the more they get depressed the more they withdraw and the more they withdraw the more they they get depressed now this is really a good time to take the child back to the primary school or back to the nursery school because when they get there everybody's too busy to talk to them and so they go back there and they find oh it's not so nice here i must start dealing with this because they don't want to deal with the depression and unfortunately mothers instead of helping children through a crisis they always want to take the child's problem away from them so they say, I don't want to go to school. Mother says, uh, but you must go to school. No, I've got no friends. Okay, let's go to school. I when I come and pick you up, the mother picks the child up and says, look at that boy over there. He looks a nice boy. Let's go and ask him if he'll come home with you tomorrow. And so the mother starts taking over the problem and the child is all embarrassed because that boy doesn't want it. So, uh, you can't take a child's problem away from them. And that's what parents have got to realize. You can't take a child's problem away from them. You've got to help them work through the problem. No psychologist can uh, solve another person's problems. When you do that, you're making a big mistake in psychology. What can a psychologist do? Help a person uh, deal with their own problem. All you need to give them is support, not take their problem away. So Derek, right now with COVID-19, we are in a situation where everybody's being sent home to work. So we're this, at the same place where that child is, they've just gone to big school and they're trying to find their feet. And it's 
it's different and it's strange and there's no there's been no no repetition that neurological pathway has not been wired yet so there's no confidence in my ability to cope here to work from home uh, and now you have the added responsibility that you are now doing remote schooling so you have to take that on too we've never been teachers before our children have never been taught by their parents. Our children's routine has been completely upended. So we're feeling at sea and we're not feeling terribly well-resourced or skilled at what we're doing right now. Is that part of what's leading to our feelings of depression and feeling down and feeling not good enough and not able? I think let's just back up there and with these three stages go related specifically to COVID. That first stage, uh, before we started, uh, uh, we first heard about this coronavirus and people discussed it, it was low key on the news. And we said, yes, there's another virus, there's been other viruses and uh, I wouldn't like to get this flu but we didn't know how serious it was. And so we discussed it quite rationally. Our children heard us discussing it, so they were starting to learn about this virus. And then suddenly, and it came so quickly, suddenly there were hundreds, thousands of deaths. And so uh, immediately we went into our huge stress mode, the, uh, um, um, the first stage again, uh, Immobilization. We were absolutely immobilized we by immobilized our fear. fear. Yeah. Look how many million. I might get it. My children might get it. We didn't know at that stage that it wasn't affecting children as much. So we were all panicking about our children and our grandchildren. This is terrible. And we uh, related immediately to the stories we heard from our grandparents about the Spanish flu. Look how many people died in the streets in South Africa and England. And our children heard us discussing this, and so our children went into immobilization. They, uh, they were talking about it at school, uh, and my grandchildren came home and they were telling us terrible stories about uh, there, through that immobilization stage. Yeah. And how did we, now we had to calm our children down, we had to calm uh, ourselves down, so how did we do it? By starting to minimize the problem. We said, look, it looks like only one in a hundred people are dying. And why will it be me? Uh, so we told our children, no, don't worry, you won't die. We, mom and dad won't die from it. It's only old people over 80 that are dying from COVID. We don't have to worry so much. So we started to minimize that problem. Now we've come to the reality and people and plus the lockdown the two things together that it is so serious and some children have got it and now they uh, we, we they sitting at home without friends without grandparents support and so we have gone uh, most of the world has gone into a, a, some stage of depression mm. and a depression and, because of fear and loss because I think we're underestimating the grief side of what we're right. experiencing, the loss right. of freedoms, the loss of autonomy and choice. 
and it's not fair. Nothing's fair. And from in a child's perspective, I can't have my birthday party. I can't have have play dates. I can't, you know, be outside in the street on my bike. This isn't fair. I can't uh, hold my mother's hand while she's dying. I can't even go and see her when she's dying. Uh, funerals are restricted. Uh, and so it's quite natural that we're going to go into some form of depression. Just on a word on that. All these stages that we're talking about, and there are seven in, the, in this particular model, and we know in Kubler-Ross's uh, grief cycle, there are five stages. Right. I know from my own experience that grief is not linear, that we do circle back into stages. And I picked this up when we had our lockdown extended. People had just started lifting out of this third mm -hmm. stage of depression, moving to acceptance. And then we got the lockdown extended and then we cycled back into depression again. Right. And uh, we call that the roller coaster period between the third stage depression and the fourth stage acceptance of reality. You go from, let's take that child going to school. They in depression because they, uh, finding it difficult to read, they feel they're not coping with reading, they haven't made a friend. So now they've gone back to their nursery school, they're not going to be able to go back to the nursery school. So now they realize they've got to deal with this on a conscious or subconscious level. And so uh, they uh, start to, uh, so that's that full stage. I accept that I can't go back. I must deal with this. As I say, it's either on a conscious or a subconscious level. And so they now start working towards the fifth stage, and that is testing. So they test their new situation out. So they go to the friendliest face in the class, and they say, how about coming home with me tomorrow? My mother will get us pizzas, and we'll watch a movie. Now, if that testing is successful and that child says, yes, I'd love to come, then they're on their way. But if that child looks at them and says, no, I don't like your face, then they push back into acceptance of reality and then back into depression. And so they will go from those, from depression to acceptance of reality to testing and backwards again until it is successful. Mm. And and essentially what we're doing is rewiring how we behave, how we choose to behave, what kind of actions we take, living with the consequences, digesting them, internalizing them, and then going out and testing again to see if that is true or if we can create a different result, which is actually about taking responsibility for one's actions and one's attitude. It's putting it to the test. It's actually doing this. It's doing the transition. It's not just thinking about the transition. Right. And now let's put that in the context of the coronavirus. Uh, we've accepted that we've got to be in lockdown. But how, for how long we haven't accepted? And so we would like to test a new situation out, but at the moment we can't test the new situation out. And so even though we've accepted reality and we're moving on to testing, 
we can't test. And so we are pushed back into reality and back into depression. And until we are given the opportunity to test the new situation, I believe we're going to be stuck. So at the moment, uh, I think we uh, are still in uh, acceptance of reality and wanting to test. We do, at least we want to test the situation. When you're really in depression, you don't want to test the situation. You're scared of testing the situation. Mm, mm. So I think we are going to move there as soon as the government says, right, we will let the children go back to school, even if it's on a part-time basis or whatever. And so another obvious part of our depression is parents thought it was going to be so easy to teach their children. I mean, look at the fees we pay for private schooling and, and what do they really do? Teachers have always lacked a bit of respect, unfortunately, from parents. They don't believe teachers work very hard. They say, huh, they have a half day. And the teachers teach for five and a half hours. Then they've got uh, 30 uh, compositions to mark and 30 maths sums to mark, etc. So parents never realized just how hard teaching was. But now when they try it for an hour, they suddenly realize, oh my goodness, I can't cope. And so parents have begun to feel inadequate because now their children look at them. You know, uh, I remember when my daughters were young, they'd come to me and say, Dad, what's two plus two? And I'd say four. And they thought I was very clever. How do you spell cat? I'd say C-A-T. And they thought I was a genius. But I remember when they went to high school, the first two weeks at high school, my eldest daughter came to me and said, Dad, did you do mathematics for matric? And I said, yes, and my heart sank. And she said, oh, good. Can you help me with this algebra problem? And I knew I couldn't. And I took one look at it. And I said, my darling, I, I can't help you with this algebra problem. And for the first time, I saw the pain in her eyes. She looked at me, and I could see she was saying, my dad's not a genius after all. <laughs> and so parents are dealing with this now. They, they suddenly lost a, a huge amount of respect that they had before with their children. Yeah, that they don't know everything and they don't have all the answers. Mm -hmm. And answers. neither can we expect ourselves to have the answers. This answers. is not what we were trained for. We, we were, were trained, trained we're not even trained to be parents. We're learning how to be mm -hmm. parents. And now yeah. you're having to learn how to not be a teacher, but I think position yourself as a guide alongside your child, partnering right. with the teacher right. and learning a new set of skills here. Actually, you're a facilitator between the two. Right, right. And these children are dealing with this new fact that my parents don't know everything. Which I is a loss. It's a loss. I can't always rely on my parents. Mm. That's a loss, though. So children, I think we're underestimating uh, the amount of grief and loss that is running emotional interference in our children's learning process. Right. Right. And in our ability to be productive and engaged at work, working remotely, because that is, we're learning new skills, how to be in a new space for work. And at the same time, all the emotional stresses of the things we've talked about, immobilization, minimization, depression, 
that is running interference. We're having to cope with that and absorb it, internalize it, work it through. And that all interferes in our ability to concentrate, our ability to hear, our ability to see. And these are all um, symptoms of grief and trauma. We are going through a traumatic adjustment. And you see, uh, one of the things, everything you said is absolutely right. One of the things you left out, our confidence has been shattered in ourselves mm. and the, the children's confidence in themselves and in us has been shattered. Right, so now, as I say, at the moment, we can't go into the testing stage. When we do go into the testing stage, of course, it's going to depend on the pace that the governments allow us to uh, readjust. And so we will, see, uh, we will yet to see how we adjust to that. But what, what we've got to do then, uh, once the testing has been successful, and that will come, we don't know how long it's going to be. We're going to have ups and downs and backwards and forwards, but it will come and life will get back to what they are referring to as the new normal. It won't be the old normal, we know that. It will be the new normal. We will be able to go on holiday. I'm sure I'm like most of the people in Britain. Uh, our family were booked and paid for a lovely holiday uh, in Portugal in August. That's not going to happen. At the moment, we, uh, there's a dispute about whether we're going to be refunded or not, because now the European Union is saying we simply can't afford to refund everybody. The, the economy will break. So, uh, you know, all the time there's new things happening, mm. uh, but eventually we will come through this and we'll have to get used to our loss. So we'll have to redefine our uh, new normal. And that is the sixth stage, and that is search for meaning. So we'll have to give our new life meaning. And how do you do that? You compare your new life to your old life, and you've dealt with that stage if you can say, actually, I'm happy with the new life. But if you compare your new life to your old life and you say, I can't cope, then you're going to be all the way back again. So that's a situation of not moving on. Not and moving. we often see that with people when they've lost somebody close to them, they get stuck in the past. They get stuck pre the event and they keep wishing for what they can't have, which leads to uh, feelings of being victimized of being and, and then you get stuck you get stuck in the emotions and the negative emotions of disappointment and um, anger and shame and frustration and in a way it's a prison of one's own making that one can't transition and be flexible and adaptable and accept what is in fact you and i had a conversation the other day around you know how do we help an eight-year-old for example deal with being in lockdown or anything, all the things we've discussed, remote learning, not being able to see your friends, not being able to see your teacher. And you said, well, life deals us all a, a, a hand of cards. And we don't get to necessarily choose the hand, but we do get to choose which cards we discard and which cards we keep. And I think that's a very powerful analogy to unpack for people. All right. All right. 
Now let's take the example of uh, uh, search for meaning with a child who's gone from primary school to high school and hasn't dealt with the problems. Now, how does he come to uh, a good search for meaning in his new If he will compare his new situation with the old situation. And if he says, no, I still want to be back in primary school, he hasn't coped. He's coped with the new situation. If he can say, I'm glad I'm in high school. I wouldn't like to be down in the primary school with those babies anymore. I'm proud to be in high school. I like my high school blazer. I like my high school friends. So he's given the new situation a positive meaning. Yeah. And so we will find that there have been many pluses with what we've learned over this isolation. We've learned to uh, new skills, and uh, we've learned uh, to deal with boredom. We've learned to deal with uh, uh, loneliness of being independent. I can cope without my mother, especially without my mother-in-law. I, I can cope. I don't have to have this huge support that I needed before. I can cope. And so you've come to the last stage, which is internalized. You know you've come to the last stage of internalization when you're no longer comparing the old situation with the new situation. You're just happy with the situation you're in. Derek, that takes time. It is a process and we need to help people to be realistic about the process. And one of the things that I'm banging on about at the moment with employers is that Rome was not built in a day. This takes time to adapt and adjust to, just like grief. You know, I'm, I mentioned that I've spent the last two years working through this uh, process of grief. And it has taken me, you know, when people said to me, this is going to take you 18 months to three years to work through. I went, good grief, that is a life sentence. That, and I was horrified that I could be possibly not fully functional at my optimum for that length of time. And I got to the end of the first 12 months and I thought, gee, they might be right because I'm nowhere near cooked here. And I got to 18 months and I figured out they, there was real validity in this thing that time is a healer. Mm -hmm. And I only in January this year did I start waking up with my new reality in place, not thinking, gosh, my life's changed so much. That wasn't my first thought of the day, or my husband's not here. That was not my first thought of the day, but it took me a full 24 months to get to that place. What sort of time period are we looking at here, do you think? I mean, I know we can't be definitive, but how do we maintain realistic here as individuals? If we had a message for employers, and maybe even school heads and educators, how can we be more realistic about getting okay. this place? If we get into our heads, and uh, we use that cliche, uh, transition is not an event, it's a process. It's a process, it's not an event. Mm. And most people want to latch on to events. When I give the occasional wedding speech, to friends or relatives. I say marriage is a process, it's not an event. 
I say a wedding is an event. Mm. Marriage is a process. It's a process that if you follow it as you make your vows until death do us part, that gives you an idea of process. Mm. Process is not something you can count in months or years. Process uh, is an extension that carries on and on. For me, that speaks to the fact that we are always in the process of becoming. Right. We are always in a process of adapting to something, whether it's a new relationship, whether it's giving away something that we've lost, a business relationship, a company, your wealth, your health, your country. We are actually surrounded by daily moments of loss and adjustment. Take your position and your son's position. Uh, the event was a terrible event. The process, you are kind of taught by people around you and uh, all sorts of theories uh, that it will take some time. People always want to put time into a process. Now, you, as you say, it took you 24 months to deal with this process. Uh -uh. That process, well, it's not going to, wouldn't it be sad if it did end? Mm. You see, you don't ever want to come to the stage where you've just forgotten about your husband. Your children don't ever want to be in the stage, even when they're 80, that they've forgotten about their father, that it means nothing to them. And so a process goes on almost uh, terminally. So it's an absorption of your new reality. Right. Right. Okay. The pain lessens, yes, but the process doesn't end. Mm -hmm. And right now, I would say people are full of confusion, full of fear. There's that element of feeling out of control. Right. Because we can't see the we future. And, and a lot of what's going on is out of our control. The only control we actually have is in this moment, our very choice in this moment, right. and our attitude towards what may or may not happen. So keeping, how do we keep a flexible mindset set versus getting fixated? And I keep saying to people, don't get fixated on a date of when lockdown will mm. will will go away because in a few months' time we might have a resurgence of infections and we might go back into lockdown. Mm -hmm. So right. the fact that lockdown is being lifted does not mean it is the end, which goes back to what yeah. you're saying, you know, that that there is never an end to these processes of loss and grief. It is just an adaptation and an adjustment and a transition. But maybe well, you, you could give us some advice on flexibility. You take this week we've been celebrating Victory in Europe Day 75 years ago. Mm. People who are celebrating it today weren't even alive when it happened, but we still we're still dealing with that process. Uh, we uh, people are still dealing with the process if they are Christians about Christ being crucified. Uh, the Irish are still going on about the 1916 rebellion. Uh, so uh, my, uh, my children even know about 
the Spanish flu. I wasn't even born during yeah. the Spanish flu, uh, but we are still talking about it because process never actually ends. Mm, mm. But as I say, the pain gets less, but it's still there and we don't want it to disappear. We don't want our history to disappear because we all know history repeats itself. And so it's an inbuilt thing in human beings not to just totally forget about the past. Because what same, we are today is a function yeah, of our history. Kind of a sum total of where we've been. But I guess I'd like to leave on a, on a, a, a positive note of um, when, when we embrace our new circumstances and we take ownership of them, we can start moving forward. Uh, and that is internalizing the reality, obviously. But, but choosing not to be a victim is a choice. Right. Let's just quickly go through the things that you should be dealing with with your, cho uh, your children and yourselves. The first thing is knowledge is power. So once people know the process that they're going to go through these seven stages, that's already power. When your children say to you, I'm scared, you can sit down and tell them. You don't have to say to a five-year-old, look, you're in minimization now, but don't worry, you'll, you'll see. Uh, okay. uh, so you sit down and tell them, go through the process with them in very simple terms so that they, uh, people love to latch on to something that is definite in a time when there's uh, uh, indefinite. So you go through this, 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 this. So now they know there are seven stages and they know they're going to work. That gives them hope already. So knowledge is powerful. Second thing is don't try and stop a stage. Don't say to a child, you mustn't cry. There's nothing to worry about coronavirus. There's nothing to worry about not having your birthday party. It is something to worry about. It is something to get depressed about. Let them get depressed. Don't shield that emotion. You can't stop an emotion. You've got to support the child through an emotion. On the other hand, if you are handling this process well, your children will handle it well. It's a rule of thumb. The more the parents, the adults are depressed or emotional, the more the children are going to be depressed and emotional. But you mustn't hide your emotions either. You can also cry. It's not harmful for your children to see you cry as long as you get better. You wipe the tears away and you laugh. So you don't hide your emotions. But on the other hand, the child that's dealing with it very well, you don't go to your child after six weeks and say, there's something odd about you. You ought to be depressed by now. <laughs> so you don't try and push an emotion. And some parents want to do that. They, want, they think their children have to be depressed in order to deal with it. No, people handle things in different ways. And as I say, mainly it's the way their parents handle it. So you don't stop an emotion. You don't try and rush an emotion. You don't try and rush them through these seven stages. Let them develop in their own time, giving them support all the time. The, probably the best thing is to create a positive belief system with yourself and your children. Uh, you call it reorientating 
What's your term for it? Reorientating? Uh, reframing. 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 Okay. Get them to believe they can cope with situations. I can handle this. I can cope with this. Mm. It's going to be very hard. It's going to be very difficult. We might sob, we might cry, we might get frightened, we might get angry, but we will cope with mm. this. Mm. It's not what's happening to you that causes the problem. It's how you deal with what's happening to you that causes the problem. So if your brother punches you, your brother didn't make you cry. You made yourself cry. You can laugh about it. You can punch him. You can run away. You can go to your mother. Uh, you you have options. Far. You have options. options. You have options. Let's look at the options. The parents will sit and look at the options. Okay, you're very upset because your party, no one can come to your party tomorrow. So what are we going to do about that? We can cry about it. Do you want to start crying about it? Do you want me to cry with you about it? Shall we cry about it? Let's cry about it. Let's see if it helps. Oh, it's not helping. So what can we do about it? Okay, we can have a video with our friends at the party. So we can cope. We can manage. So we've got to develop that positive belief system. It's not circumstances that cause our behavior. We must take responsibility for our own emotions, our own behavior. Don't blame your child. Don't say, you make me cross. Children don't make you cross. They do things. You can laugh about those things. You can punish them. You can get, distract them and get them to do something else. Or you can get angry about it. You choose. You choose. Child doesn't make we must accept responsibility for our own emotions our own uh, actions. So very critical at this time is to show children that we still have the power of choice and to remind yourself on a daily basis that you still have the power of choice. How you show up today in your remote place of work or your role as your guide alongside your child in their remote schooling experience is a choice. And you've you've mentioned how children will often deal with things in the way their parents do and i keep saying that parental anxiety is far more infectious than the coronavirus and then the last thing i want to say is have a routine nothing works better than routine so have a schedule for the day relax it on the weekend but monday to friday there must be a time for getting up in the morning, a time for breakfast. There must be a time for doing their work that's given by the school or you are setting out for them. And I suggest it should be at least three hours a day. The high schools, I know my two grandsons are at high school here in England. They're getting about six hours work a day from the school. The school are brilliant. Uh, they're sending really wonderful stuff to them. Uh, the primary school where my daughters are, they send in very useful information to the parents. So there must be about three hours a day uh, working at least, depending on what the school is asking for. There must be a time for lunch, a time for supper, a time to be on their 
computers and their games, etc., etc. There must be a, uh, at least a half an hour's physical exercise a day, whether it's skipping, running on a strike, jumping on a trampoline, going for a walk, riding a bike. There must be at least one hour's physical activity a day, and there must be a time for going to bed. Mm. Just in that whole schedule, Derek, what's your advice to parents who are now working from home with children? In a nutshell, how do they get their work done while they're trying to manage their children? This is such a massive issue right now. Right. I think, as I say, and it's going to depend on the child's age, like high school children, you really can't help them much. So they'll they'll get on with their six hours work and you can carry on with your own work. I'm finding, because I've been filling in for my daughter when she's at work, I'm finding that two little ones, the one is five and the other is seven, I'm spending about three hours a day with them. Now, if you're working from home, I'm afraid that's three hours you've got to give them, and uh, maybe you've got to go to bed later, but you've got to give them that three hours. You've got to adjust your schedule. Instead of having an eight-hour work day, you're going to have an 11-hour work day, and that you've got to deal with. I can cope with the 11 hours. Mm. And I'll having myself up over the weekend. Yeah, and having that flexible mindset, I keep saying to people, because I've worked from home for 25 years with children, you get your deep work done when your kids are asleep, so you've got to get up right. early, do a chunk of work that's going to make you feel like you've got some control, that you have uh, some sense of satisfaction, and then those first three hours, of, as you say, when the, when the kids are up and have to do stuff, they, they just can't do it without some kind of supervision and direction, depending on the age. But I, I, I reckon under the age of nine, you are committed, uh, yeah, like committed. a pig to slaughter at this point. And, you you and two are safe, children, I'm afraid. Deal with it. Yep. And, and you can cope. You can cope with 11 hours work a day because and, it's varied. Yep. And also, I, I just would like to say a word to those who are managing teams to be realistic about who's in your team and how old are their children yeah. and what kind of support they have at home. Yeah. Because depending on the child's age and stage, they will need more or less support from their parents at this time. And we do have to take that into account. In fact, I think that we're probably sitting in a, a situation for the first time in many, many, many years where we might be able to rewrite the human resources playbook. Sure, sure. Very good point. To be a little more family-friendly, family-centric, mm. uh, connection and relationship-centric, what makes a healthy society? And for me, I think that's quite an exciting space to be in, that we might actually be able to relook at this thing that has been so built around profit and so built around process and not actually built around relationship. And actually, when you've got a happy workforce, they are more productive than if they are unhappy and not happy. Yeah, and that's the, th that's the state we want to get to in families and at home. Derek, thank you for your time today. I really do appreciate you uh, blocking off some time. I know you have a daughter who's a nurse, correct? Right, right. And She's uh, on the front line in the intensive care unit nursing patients on ventilators, so she's really in the front line. 
Wow. So you really know what you're talking about here, not just because you're a veteran educator and a retired counselor, but because you are a parent, a grandparent who is co-parenting right now through COVID-19, not just older children, but children who are in that foundation phase, who are learning critical foundational skills. And you know, through your work and through your current position that they cannot do this by themselves. Thank you for reminding us that change is inevitable, that we need to learn to adjust to change and that any kind of change, positive or negative, is going to be stressful. So you've given us perspective today and that every change brings with it an opportunity for learning and for growth. For me, that's critical, is that every day we need to sit down and say, so what did I learn today? What did I learn today? And if you can just journal that, at the end of every day, find one thing that you learned today. You will come out of this whenever we raise our heads from lockdown. Um, But also just reiterating what you said, that this is a process. Transition is not an event. It's a process, and it will never be truly over. We will always be processing this. And I really, really loved what you said about marriage, that a wedding is an event and marriage is a process. And it takes the rest of your life to be in a marriage. And we are having to accept that COVID-19 is a process that will be with us for the rest of our lives in some way, shape or form. And it is one of those things that will shape who we become as we move through this process. Derek, you've got um, a fabulous book, which I've had on my bookshelf for years, and it's called Parenting with Panache. And there are five very specific chapters in that book. And it is available still in South Africa and from you in the UK. Can you just give our listeners uh, the details or do you want me to to rattle them off quickly? How do uh, they get you, hold of, you, of it? How uh, they can get hold of it? Uh, you can email me on Derek and that's spelled D-E-R-E-C-K. So Derek Jackson 1203 at email.com. Sorry, at gmail, at gmail.com. At gmail.com, sorry. And then in South Africa, you have a teacher um, who is selling the books for you. Her name is Happiness, and her number is 073-900-3646. Fantastic. Derek, thank you so much to all our listeners. Parenting with Panache is one of those handbooks that you all need, so get hold of a copy now. And if you'd like a copy of my Uh, Keep Your Business Running White Paper on how to mitigate the risks around uh, parenting at home with children uh, and working from remotely with children underfoot, how to get a better handle on who your children are, how children operate in the world, and what you can realistically expect. You can get hold of that at nickybush.com. On that note, uh, that brings us to the end of this particular episode of Win at Work and Life with Nikki Bush. Don't forget to share this podcast with your friends and colleagues to empower them to win at work and life too.